6th. Again, nursery will be open. Pre-K through 5th grade, kids will be down here. All right? So speaking of, of kids, here's something that I've, I've been wondering uh, over the past week as I was thinking through this passage. I wonder if we went upstairs and we took a survey of all the kids, we asked them this question, what, what they would say. What would they say if we said, kids, describe for us in one word the Bible? How would, what word do you think kids would choose to describe the Bible? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, Sean. It's always, the answer is always Jesus. What about you? <laughs> Sean, how would you describe the Bible? <laughs> Jesus. Um, but really, how, like, what word comes to your mind when you think about the Bible? Or if we were, if we were to pull 10,000 people across the country, what would be some of the common words that people would use to describe the Bible? I think to my 12-year-old self, if someone came to me as a 12-year-old and said, Cole, what, would you, what word would you use to describe the Bible? You know what word I would say? Boring. It's boring. Uh, I don't think I had really even read the Bible, but I knew enough to know it was boring and irrelevant for my life. My, my exposure to the Bible when I was 12 was, I'd be in church, and we would have an Old Testament reading in a monotone voice, and then a reading from the Gospels in the monotone voice, and then a reading from another part in the New Testament in a monotone voice, and then we would move on. That was my exposure to the Bible. It was completely boring, completely irrelevant in my mind. And then I became a Christian, and I started reading the Bible. And the Bible is a lot of things, but boring it is not. Just open to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then imagine that. Just let your your imagination think through, like, what in the world would that have been like for an all-powerful, all-knowing God to speak everything into existence? It is not boring. And then you just keep reading, and it's like one plot twist after another plot twist after another plot twist. I was talking to a friend earlier this week. He said, you know, reading Genesis, it's like reading the script from Days of Our Lives. I said, yeah, that's that's a pretty good analogy. If you're studying alongside us in the book of Genesis, you know that we're in Genesis chapter 19, and the passage we're studying this week is certainly no exception to that. It is drama, is what it is. You know, if you jump on our website, and you, you click About Us, and then you click beliefs, the first thing that you'll see in our statement of faith as a church, it revolves around the scriptures. And here's what it says. The sole basis of our beliefs is the Bible. The 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, it was uniquely, verbally, and fully inspired by the Holy Spirit and was written without error in the original manuscript. It is the supreme and final authority in life and faith in every age. This is our statement of faith around the scriptures. And so I think it's important to recognize as we get into our text this morning that this passage, just as much as Genesis 1 and John 3 and Psalm 103 and Revelation 21, Matthew 28, whatever scripture you want to pull into your mind, this passage is just as uniquely and verbally and fully inspired by the Holy Spirit and without error. And what that means is that God intends to convey something to us. He wants to communicate something to us through this passage. And so if you have your Bibles, 
you can feel free to open them up to Genesis chapter 19. And our goal is to understand what it is that God wants to communicate to us through this passage. So, Genesis 19, we're picking up here in verse 30 of Genesis 19. If you're new with us, we're working through the book of Genesis, and we're in Genesis 19 today. And so, verse 30 says this, Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with their father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. That night, they again got their father to drink wine, and the younger went and slept with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger also gave birth to a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Nothing weird there. What I'm going to ask you to do is spend just a couple minutes praying before we dive into the, ser- or the sermon this morning. Um, stick your heads together with someone you're sitting next to. Uh, if you're new with us and uh, you're not really sure uh, what this looks like or you don't really know anyone, feel free to introduce yourself. And then just we spend time just asking God to bless this time, to teach us, to give us a a humble heart. Um, I think, man, we come in here and there are distractions going on in our lives, right? Maybe we're distracted about, okay, well, what am I going to do with my kids for five weeks when we don't have kids class? And maybe that's going through your mind. Or maybe we're distracted uh, just by things going on in our homes, and our families, and our workplaces. And so we can spend time just asking that God would free our minds of distraction and help us to focus in on what he has to teach us this morning, okay? So I'm going to invite you to do that with someone uh, you're sitting next to, and then I'll step back up here. I'll pray for us, and we'll get into the passage this morning. Go ahead. Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks just for the opportunity to be here together this morning. Uh, 
fellowship, being with other believers is uh, such a blessing. God, oftentimes we just we don't recognize what a blessing it is, and so we just want to acknowledge, Lord, uh, God, it's from you. We we thank you for it. We thank you for the gift of the body. We thank you for your word, God. Thank you for an opportunity to come together and hear from you. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this time to to reveal yourself to us more clearly. I pray, God, that you would help us to have hearts that are hungry, that are eager to learn, that recognize our need for you. We we confess just the the distractions that often go on in our minds and our hearts that, that pull us away from you. Father, I pray that you would help us to set those aside, to recognize that there's nothing that we need more than hearing from you, walking closely with you, and seeing you clearly. So may you use this time to help us do that. We need your grace for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm curious to know what's going through your mind after you read that text. <laughs> Some of you throw up a little bit in your mouth. Some of you might be like simultaneously disgusted, but also kind of drawn into the sheer drama of it all. Um, others of you, though, I wonder, are you thinking, man, this sounds familiar. Like, isn't there another place where this guy was rescued from a massive catastrophic destruction only to get wasted and then be mistreated by his kids? Yes. Right? His name's Noah. We studied this. There's some similarities here. And so what we're going to do first this morning is we're going to examine this passage through two different lenses. Okay? And so if you're taking notes, this is just going to form the outline for you this morning. The first lens that we're going to examine this passage through is a historical lens. We want to see how this passage helps us interpret events that happened both prior to this event as well as after this event. And then the second lens that we'll put on is a human lens. We want to put this on to take a look at this, the characters to understand the human heart and to understand how the human heart works and what our hearts need. And so the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage through the historical lens, and we're going to recognize that this event does parallel much of what we read about with the account of Noah and the flood. And it's not just this episode of drunkenness and shame that seems to correspond to one another, but it's really this whole progression of warning and judgment and deliverance as a whole. And so for starters, here's a chart for you to just take a look at. This may be an incomplete chart, and I'm not going to take time to walk through every element of it, but what I want us to see that there are some really interesting parallels between the flood narrative and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We can see the similarities in the language that the author uses between the flood account and then what we have in Genesis 19. And there's parallels on more than one level. Now, in full transparency, I I don't really know the degree of intentionality that there is. I don't really know the degree of importance it is that we see these parallels. I do think it's pretty cool to see. But apart from it just being cool to see from a literary standpoint, and regardless of the intentionality behind it, I think there's some significant themes that emerge as we begin to see the similarities between these two passages. And one theme that emerges is this theme of human imperfection. Right? So 
God's judgment through the flood and God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, what we see is that it could not change the human heart. We see this with Noah. We see this with Lot. Put yourself in Lot's shoes for a minute. Okay, let's just say that you received the very same warning that Lot received from God. He he came to you and said, hey, I'm going to to destroy all of Des Moines in this fiery storm of sulfur. And you had to stand there and you watched every place you're familiar with and every person that you know get destroyed by fire from the Lord. And then God came to you and he says, do you know why I did that? I did it because of their pride and their sin. What else would you need to compel you to never sin again? Like it it was just right there in front of you. God's judgment on sin. You observed it with your two eyes. I don't think you would ever, 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 ever sin again. But that's not what happened with Noah. And that's not what happened. Certainly not with what happened with Lot. And so what we see is these, these stories, they, they demonstrate the corruption of the human heart, the imperfection of the human heart, and that there is no way to escape the corruption that is in the human heart. We cannot do it. And so we praise God that he made a way for us through Christ to receive a new heart, to receive a new identity. We have a new future when we put our faith and trust in Christ. Apart from Christ, we are unchanged. And that is clear when we look at the story of the flood and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The second thing we see are sin's repercussions. Right? Just as Ham's sin against Noah had implications for the descendants of Canaan as well as the nation of Israel, Lot's daughter's sins against him had significant consequences as well. Moab was the father of the Moabites, and Ben-Ami was the father of the Ammonites, the, the fruit of their sin. And what's significant about these nations? Well, they made life very difficult for Israel. Israel did not like the Moabites and Ammonites. The Moabites and Ammonites did not like Israel. In fact, at one point, the king of Moab hired a guy named Balaam to curse Israel, to to ask God to curse Israel, and he would not do it. But what we see is that if Lot's daughters had not gotten pregnant by their father, Israel would have had fewer enemies. So we see the repercussions of sin here. But the second thing that we need to understand about these nations, about the Moabites and the Ammonites, and really in particular the Moabites, is what leads us to this third theme that emerges, which is God's providence. And we've, we've touched on this pretty extensively with the flood. We see uh, how Canaan was cursed due to Ham's actions toward Noah. But at the same time, God used the Canaanites to demonstrate God's faithfulness in bringing about a nation for himself and, and just his faithfulness to that nation. But similarly, even through the sin and failures of Lot and his daughters, God is providentially setting the stage for his promises to be fulfilled in really remarkable ways. And so it's not just the Moabites as a nation we need to 
really pay attention to, but specifically one Moabite, a woman by the name of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, we read how Ruth accompanies her mother-in-law back to the land of Judah, where she meets Boaz, who marries her, and together they have a child named Obed, and Obed grows up and he fathers Jesse, who grows up and fathers David. And we know that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes from the line of David. I don't, I don't claim to understand God's ways fully. Right? He, he is God. I am not God. But what we do see is that God sovereignly worked to bring about the salvation of mankind through a Moabite woman who would not have existed apart from the egregious actions of Lot and his daughters. It's very, very interesting. And so what we see as we read Scripture through a historical lens is that it is very helpful because we can see how God is the providential author of all of history. It's helpful to see how God worked despite the imperfections of his people and the pervasive wickedness and rebellion of the nations. Not one promise of God has been thwarted by humanity. God has been faithful to his promises despite humanity. And we see that clearly when we view Scripture through this historical lens. But there's much more to Scripture than just timelines and maps and charts and connecting the dots historically. The book of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, Scripture does much more than just inform the mind. Scripture is intended to penetrate the heart. And I think much is revealed about the human heart in this passage. And if we were just approaching this passage from a historical lens, I think we might miss that. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time together is take a look at this passage, not from a historical perspective, but from a human perspective, this human lens. And I want us to really consider what's going on with Lot and his daughters as we do this. So when we consider Lot's life, in some ways, it seems like one big giant tug-of-war match, right? On one side, Lot has a desire to walk with the Lord and to do what is right. But on the other side, Lot has his mind fixed on creating this perfect life for himself. He, he chooses to live near Sodom. He, over time, is drawn into Sodom, allured somehow by the culture of, of pride and no restraint. And when Sodom is about to be destroyed, we see Lot as someone who stands in contrast to the culture, but at the same time, when he's commanded to flee, he hesitates. Instead of going to the mountains, he, as instructed, he goes to Zoar. So we, we see this tug of war, we see this pull, this conflict, this struggle going on inside of the soul of Lot. And this tug of war finally comes to an end in our passage. And one side clearly wins. And Lot falls. And he falls hard. And what, I'm, what I'm not saying is that 
Lot was not righteous. We know that Scripture presents Lot as a righteous man before God. But at the same time, we see him lose this battle in his life. And he, he rejects obedience to God in this instance. His soul is in conflict. He's struggling. Do you ever find that your soul is in conflict? Do you ever sense that struggle in your own soul? That inside of you, you, you desire the Lord. You want to walk closely with God. You, you want to be filled with His Spirit. But at the same time, you're longing for worldly pleasures. You're longing for temporary satisfaction. You want to indulge your flesh. And, and you just sense this struggle <laughs> pulling you back and forth and back and forth inside of you. you know, if this is you, this is a word of comfort for you from uh, a guy named J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. This is what he writes. He says, a deep sense of that struggle and a vast amount of discomfort from it are no proof that a man is not sanctified Nay, rather, I believe they are healthy symptoms of our condition and prove that we are not dead, but alive. A true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as his peace. I think this warfare is in in lot. I think he's struggling within. And I do not think that lot struggled well. Again, It's not that he didn't know the Lord. It's not that he lost his righteousness that was imputed on him from God. But I do not think that Lot decided in the very core of his being that he was going to honor the Lord. This warfare that Ryle mentions inside of Lot, it it seems short-lived, if it lived at all. And it ended in defeat. And so as we work through this passage from a human perspective, I have three goals for us. And the first goal is I want us to, I want to help us see the enemies in the text that waged war against Lot's soul. Okay, and secondly, I want to help us see the enemies in our context. These same enemies that waged war against Lot that he didn't fight back against that ultimately led to his failure with his daughters. I want to help us see those enemies in our context today. How they might be at play in our own lives and how we might recognize them. And then thirdly, I want to equip us with the weapons that we need to fight against these enemies. These are enemies that wage war against the soul and God's word has commanded us To defend our soul. But with what? What are we to use to fight back against the enemy's present? And if you were to ask just a random Christian on the street, uh, what what are the enemies that wage war against your soul? I think you'd probably hear three enemies given. I think pretty commonly people understand, well, the world, my flesh... And the devil are waging war against my soul. The world, my flesh, and the devil. See, the world entices us to give our lives to obtaining whatever it has to offer. Our flesh craves satisfaction. We want to feel good. We want to look good. We want to be well-liked by others. And the devil is there to convince us that the world and our flesh together offer the utmost satisfaction in life. 
I trust that if you've been following the Lord for any amount of time, that you know what it's like to be enticed by the world. You know what it's like to be enticed by your flesh. You know what it's like to experience Satan scheming against you, plotting against you, and pulling you away from obedience to the Lord and trying to get you to submit under his will, the will of the world or the will of your flesh. If you've been following the Lord for a while, my hunch is that that's not an unfamiliar struggle for you. And so when we look at the text here, what I think we can see is more specific enemies in Lot's life. More specific than just the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we'll work through these specific enemies. The first enemy, it's revealed to us in verse 30. It says, Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. He was afraid. So his first enemy is dread. It is fear. Right? We're, we're told that he's afraid to live in Zoar. But what is Lot doing in Zoar in the first place? Right? If you recall from last week, the, the angels warned Lot about this coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They told Lot and his family to flee to the mountains to escape the judgment that was coming. And Lot said, oh, no, no, no. Don't send me to the mountains. I will die in the mountains. Let me go to Zoar instead. And the angel said, okay. Okay. And so Lot's in Zoar because he's afraid of the disaster that would have overtaken him in the mountains. He didn't trust God to protect him from the disaster there. But now he's in the mountains. Why? Because he's afraid of being in Zoar. And we don't know exactly why, but I think we can speculate based on what we know about Lot. It seems as though Zoar was originally slated for the same sort of destruction that Sodom and Gomorrah were slated for. But when, Z- when Lot asked to go to Zoar, God spared Zoar on account of Lot. And so my assumption here is that God, or that Lot is afraid that God might change his mind and administer the same judgment on Zoar that he did in Sodom and Gomorrah for the same type of evil. And so what's clear here is that Lot is not a man of faith. He's a man of fear. He's not a man of trust. He's a man of trembling. It's this dread of disaster that moved Lot to Zoar. It's this dread of disaster that moved Lot away from Zoar, back to the mountains. None of his decisions were made in faith and trust in God's protection and provision. He was afraid. So here's the question. What are you afraid of? What do you fear most? Is it the fear of death and disaster? Either in our own lives or lives to come? Is it fear that the wrong political party is going to win the next election? Does that grip you? There's a lot of fears in our lives. I mean, think about the fear of your plans being disrupted. Is that a fear in your life? Maybe it's the plans for this afternoon. Maybe it's the plans for the next 15 years. But do you fear those plans being disrupted? See, if you do, oftentimes that fear, it moves us to do everything in our power to manipulate the circumstances to make sure our plans come to fruition. You have a fear of missing out. 
FOMO, as they say. You're, you're gripped by this fear that you might not be where you're supposed to be or you might not be with the people you're supposed to be with. Maybe you have a fear of what others think about you and you're constantly trying to prove yourself to others through what you say and what you do and what you wear, how you act. You're living for an audience of many. I'm sure the list is endless. I'm sure if we all took time to just write out our fears and we put them all together, that list, would, it would be infinitely long. But what do we do when we recognize that we are walking in fear? When we, when we get this sense of fear and dread pulling us away from faith and trust in the Lord, there's a weapon. There's a weapon that we use. Here it is. It's to fight dread with the comfort of God's word. You know, God's word it has so much to comfort us with. Right? It, do you fear disaster? Psalm 46 tells us that God is a refuge in strength. He's a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Do you fear being alone? Matthew 28 tells us that Jesus is with us always to the end of the age, that he will not leave us or forsake us. Are you afraid of death? Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ has conquered death once and for all. Are you afraid of your plans being disrupted? Romans 8, 28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Are you afraid of judgment and condemnation? For those of you who are in Christ, Romans 8 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's word has much to comfort us with. Now for those of us who are have not recognized that we've sinned against the holy God. If you have not recognized that you deserve to suffer under God's wrath for your sin and you have not repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then God's word would not be comforting at all. There is absolutely nothing comforting about understanding that. But it is comforting because the promises that God has given us in his word are true for us in Christ. It is because of Christ that we have comfort, that God's word can be comforting to us. For believers, there's nothing that can calm our fears more genuinely than the promises that are found in God's word. So Lot was a fearful man. He did not trust in God's provision and protection. And this dread, it pulled him away from the Lord and it pulled him into living among his second big enemy, which was darkness. Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave, away from people, in the dark. It's not like a cave was Lot's only option, right? Many scholars have pointed out the fact that he easily could have gone and returned and lived with Abraham. He could have chosen to surround himself with other men and women who walked by faith, but instead... Out of fear, he chose the darkness and isolation of a cave. And he chose that not just for himself, but his daughters as well. And so they lived in actual physical darkness. But I think our text shows us that they also lived in a sort of metaphorical darkness as well. We see this as Lot's daughters aim at deception. Right? This deception also is stemmed from fear. It's the, the fear of their family line, family line not being preserved. The preservation of the family line was a big deal. Culturally, 
there would have been a high level of shame for those who remained single and could not bear children. Verse 31, it says, Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our family's line. And so this fear, it compelled Lot's daughters to trick him into incest. And they clearly knew this was wicked. If they thought this was like a good way to honor the Lord, they probably wouldn't have tried to get their dad drunk in order to make that happen. Right? They knew it was wicked. They knew it was evil. And so both Lot and his daughters, they were operating out of fear. And both Lot and his daughters were living in this metaphorical and physical darkness. So the question here is, what does it look like for us to live in darkness today? I, I doubt any of us are living alone in a cave in the wilderness somewhere. I could be wrong, but most of us, I think, are not living there. So biblically, what does it mean to walk in darkness? And here's what I would say. You are walking in darkness if you are not living a life of integrity. You are among the enemy of darkness if you're not living a life of integrity. Who you are, what you love, what you do is hidden from others in an attempt to paint yourself in a better light. What people see when they see you, it's not actually real. Instead, you're deceptive. You live a life of deception. And John writes this in chapter 3 of his gospel. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds will not be exposed. And sometimes people are very skilled at continuing to be around other people while still living in the darkness. We, we just get used to putting a smile on when we walk through the doors of the church. But in your heart, if that's what you're doing, you know that your smile is not real. You know that it does not stem from genuine joy and gratitude in the Lord. But you're getting really good at doing it, and so you just keep doing it if you're walking in darkness. But other people, they're not so skilled at putting on a face. And so what happens is they feel the pull towards isolation. They don't want to be with people. And going to church and going to Bible study and meeting up with someone for coffee, whatever it might be, it doesn't sound appealing. It sounds like a chore. It sounds like something that you might rather avoid because being around others, it introduces the threat of being truly known. And if we do not recognize this pull, we don't sense the enemy of darkness there, or we do recognize it, but we don't do anything about it, then it will not be long before we stop going to church, we stop going to Bible study, we stop surrounding ourselves with other believers. Or when we are around other believers, there will be very little chance that who we present ourselves to be is not real. The real you will be hiding in the dark.
This is the threat. This is the enemy. And so how do we fight against that? There's probably a number of ways. And, and what I would say is if, if you're like, oh my goodness, that, that's me. That is going on in my soul right now. Step one, just get a brother or sister that you trust and talk to them. Just, just confess it. Say, this is what I'm struggling with. I, I want to be in the dark. I want to be isolated. I want to be alone because I have a fear of people seeing who I really am, seeing the sins that I struggle with, knowing what, what failures I've had to go through over the last period of time. That's one thing. But ultimately, the most effective weapon to fight against this enemy of darkness, do you know what it is? It is the light of God's word. We fight our fear with the comfort of God's word. We fight the enemy of darkness with the light of God's word. In 1 John 5 through 9, it says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying. We are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, John is telling us that God himself is light. And do you know how we can know God and be in his light? It is through his word, primarily. We have fellowship with God through the Bible, through his word. And it's when we walk in the light that we are immersing ourselves in the word of God. Fellowshipping with God through his word that we then have real, genuine, and transparent fellowship with one another. We move out of the darkness, we step into the light, and we find life there. But the primary weapon in order for us to do that, to fight against the darkness and step into the light, it is the word of God, the light that it provides. Lot's fear, it drew him into this life of darkness and isolation. And this darkness, what it did is it opened the door for this third enemy to come in. He was afraid. He was in the dark. And what that did is it allowed drunkenness to come right in. This is his third enemy. Lot was drunk. I think the text makes it pretty clear. Had he not been drunk, he would not have had sex with his daughters. That seems pretty clear to me. 33, so they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with their father. With her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, so you can go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. That night again, they got their father to drink wine, and the younger went and slept with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. Okay, so what, what is drunkenness? It's the effect of a large amount of alcohol, right? It's, it's the direct result of the consumption of alcohol. And when consumed in greater quantities, what happens is it significantly alters your perception of your surroundings. Reality becomes hazy, and you make decisions that are based on your altered perception of reality rather than on reality itself. Right? Isn't that what alcohol does to us? But here's the question. Is there anything else besides alcohol and drugs that 
when consumed, can alter our perception of reality? You better believe there is. Maybe not in the physical form. Maybe not something you actually consume physically. But consider how the things that we see and the things that we hear impact our perception of reality. Right? Consider different forms of media. Whether that's the news, right? CNN, NPR, Fox News. Maybe some of you don't identify either of those as news. Babylon B. Your Facebook thing that you scroll, newsfeed, that's what it's called. These are all just different forms of media. And what happens when we consume media in greater quantities is that our understanding of what is important and what really matters is impacted, right? If I spent three hours a day just scrolling through my Facebook newsfeed, what I understand to be important is going to be influenced by that. Instagram is going to tell me what I should prioritize. It's just going to be there based on what I can see. NPR, Fox News, whatever it is, it's going to tell me how I should think about current cultural and political situations and issues. It may not happen instantaneously, but over the course of time, little by little, if that is my daily diet, if that's what I'm regularly consuming, it is going to impact how I view the world. Not always in a negative way, right? I'm not saying that every sort of media is just evil and wicked and we should stay away from it, but we have to recognize that it does impact us. Or consider how what I consume can impact my view of sexuality and sex. Right? Anything from a sexualized Pepsi commercial to a late-night sitcom to pornography itself impacts how I view the realities around sex. I need to be aware of that. Or consider gossip. Gossip is something we consume. And oh, it goes down so easy. Right? Proverbs 18.8 says, The gossip's words are like choice food that goes down to one's inmost parts. And when it goes down, what does it do? It alters your view of a person. It changes how you see that person. You view people through what you have heard about them rather than what God's word says about them. So alcohol is not the only thing that can cause drunkenness. That's what caused drunkenness in Lot's life. But we have to be on guard against the things that we consume that alter our perception of the world as well. Because if we're not on guard against them, we will end up making choices that are disobedient to the Lord, that drive us further away from a close, intimate relationship with him. And so what is the weapon? What weapon do we use to fight against drunkenness? It's the truth of God's word. It is God's word that needs to shape our perspective on the world. We need to immerse ourselves in the word of God, be exposed to its truth. So notice the commonality of all of our weapons here. We, we fight fear with the comfort of what? God's word right? We fight darkness with what? The light of God's word. We fight this drunkenness with the truth of God's word. It is God's word that is our ultimate weapon to fight against our spiritual enemies. And Paul, he points this out in his letter to the Ephesians. If you want, you can flip to Ephesians 6 with me. 
He, he addresses the church around spiritual warfare. He reminds them in Ephesians 6. This is what he says in Ephesians 6. He says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And then he instructs them. He says, For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with the truth like a belt around your waist. Righteousness like armor on your chest. And your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation take up the shield of faith. With which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. So, so consider this. Every element of the spiritual armor that Paul is instructing us in here, it is defensive in nature. It's protection against the enemy, and that's good, and we need it. But there is one thing that is offense. There, there is one weapon he mentions. It is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God that we are able to use to fight against our enemies that are waging war against our soul. In our passage, dread, darkness, drunkenness, they all collaborated together to form this perfect environment for an epic fall in the lives of Lot and his daughters. And those enemies, they threaten us today. They're in our lives today. And so what do we do? We take up the word of God. We immerse ourselves in the word of God. We read it and we meditate on it. We pray through it. It becomes our daily sustenance. There's not one day in our lives that we will not be engaged in the spiritual battle. Whether or not we realize it, it is going on around us daily. So there is not one day that we can afford to be without the weapon that God has given us to use to fight against our enemies. May it dwell richly in us. God's word, it's powerful because it's true, right? It provides light and comfort that our souls so desperately need if we're going to walk with God. But it doesn't provide light and truth just in the sense of there's like a bunch of really helpful verses kind of sprinkled throughout the Bible. Really, I mean, there, there are, don't get me wrong, but it works together and points us to the one who provides the light and comfort and truth, and that is Jesus Christ. It is God's word that points us to Christ ultimately as the source of what we need. And so as a body, what God has done is he's instructed the church to remember Christ through the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take time doing that in just a little bit. See, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we have no comfort. We have no light. And God, this is what he's instructed us to do. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what we want to do right now as a fellowship, as a body of Christ, we want to take time and proclaim the death of Christ to one another. We want to